Bible. Uh, welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. I'm going to preach out, I'm going to sort of base some thoughts in this little letter at the end of the Bible called 2 John, 2 John. It's on page 848, and uh, it's a very, very tiny letter. It's very easy to miss. Also, in these Bibles are communication cards, and if you're new with us and would like to fill out a card, uh, pass on a prayer request or something like that, a comment, you can fill out a card, and we'll collect those in a little bit. All right, welcome. So glad to see you. Uh, recently, my wife and I were at this event, and shortly after we arrived, this woman who had a small part in the event saw us from across the room and kind of made her way to us and with this big smile and this sort of surprised to see you here kind of look. And, and then she said this. She said, why are you here? In, in the way that you do, you know, when you realize that this part of your life is kind of colliding with this part of your life, you didn't know that there was a connection, now you realize there is. Why are you here? She said, <clears throat> We're here for you, we said. And she just looked at us, surprised. She's like, you're here, you're here for me? Well, yeah, we're, we're here for you. We're here to see you. And she repeated it, like soaking in the, the, the significance of these words for her, soaking in the meaning and the, and the power of, of the, the, the truth that we were there for her and the significance of that for her in that moment. We are here for you. We're about halfway through this fall series on the wisdom of stability, of being here. In the first few weeks of this series, we focused almost entirely on the personal value of stability, how staying in that difficult place, how that challenging relationship, not running away from that painful reality, it's good for you. How choosing to be here and to stay here is the only way we can ever experience the power of a God who is here. How being in this moment is the only way we can ever come close to maybe perceiving some of the significance or the meaning of this moment, being here. As Stephanie Van Tassel, who preached a couple weeks ago, she said, there's always a reason to leave. There's always a reason to leave. I love that. Having the reason to leave is easy, as she put it, but it's not reason enough. The better reason to look for is not the reason to leave, it's the reason to stay. It's the, reason to, it's, the, it's, the, it's the reason to be there. It's, there's great wisdom in stability. Now, we've talked primarily about wisdom of stability for ourselves, the way it affects us. We've considered powerful personal statements that are rooted in this value of stability, such as one from Paul, like we, read, we looked a couple of weeks ago. I have found the secret to be content in whatever the circumstance. Paul, one of the writers of the Bible, says. Seriously, every circumstance, you know how to be content, at peace. And we ask, how, how, did, you, how did you find that? How, how do you do that? And Paul's response is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so my question is, well, how did you learn that? How did you learn that Christ can give you strength or power that's not your own to face whatever kind of situation you're facing? Paul knows that he can do all things through Christ. How does he know that? Because in all the things he's faced, in all the hard things that he hasn't run away from, in all the hard situations where he's chosen to remain and to be there, he has personally experienced this life-changing reality of the, of the presence of God. So there's no shortcut to discovering this. There's no amount of teaching you can hear to convince you of the reality of the presence of God in and in the moment, with you, right where you, you just have to experience it. And there's only one way to experience it, and that's by staying right there. Right? 
So you first have to choose stability in order to experience the power of it. And only then will you know, as like King David says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, he says to God. How does he know that? Well, he's there. David's in the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't bail out. He's there. He's walking through it. That's the journey. And he can testify that God is here too. So for the last several weeks, we've been mostly talking about personal benefits of stability, the ways valuing stability help us personally, specifically knowing God and knowing peace. Those are two personal, individual ways that the value of stability um, affects us. And then last week, Justin Carpenter spoke, and he talked about he turned this value of stability, turned it outward in such an interesting way. He gave a math sermon, in case you missed it. You should, you should watch it. Very interesting. Today, I want to continue this outward focus. I want to continue to lean into this outward shift, still the wisdom of stability. Now, let's begin to talk about how your embracing stability will affect those around you, primarily the people that you're sitting with, your family, your church, and then it continues to ripple outwards. In other words, the question is, this morning, the question is, for whose sake? Right? Should I embrace stability? For whom should I choose to stay? For whom would I make this decision? For whose sake? And the answer, simply put, is this. Two things. One, stability is, at first, it's for my sake. It's for my formation. Stability is a way to address the restless longings in my own heart. I need to stay for me. I need to stay so that I will put down roots, so that I can be pruned like Stephanie's Meyer lemon tree to be more effective. I need to stay so that I can become healthy. So the first reason I stay is for my sake. But then later things shift, and it's a significant shift. Stability continues to help me individually, but then it also becomes a value that I embrace for the sake of others. That's why I begin to embrace it increasingly, for the sake of others, for their formation to address the restless longings in their heart and mind, to provide security and freedom for them so that they can become healthy. In other words, initially, the value of stability is primarily personal, but then it becomes a value I hold for the sake of others. And I'm seeing parents holding babies, and it's awesome. And I want you guys to see this. Stability for the sake of others. I need to stay, in other words, not just for me. I need to stay for you. I need to stay for them. And I believe that what we'll see is that the deeper we lean into stability, the more our lives will become focused on others. And the inverse is true as well. The more our lives becomes focused on others, the more we will value the wisdom of staying. Because we'll see how important it really is in terms of long-term meaningful relationships. I think there's some kind of equation there. I think it's sort of a ratio, but I couldn't remember how to write it, so I'm going to let Justin do the math parts. And, uh, but somehow there's this relationship. Uh, and what I want to do um, this morning is root our thoughts in this one short verse near the end of the, Apostles John, the Apostle John's life. He writes very few short letters. They're included in Scripture, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're so short, they don't even have chapters. There's just verses. 13 verses in 2 John or 2 John. Here's what one of them says. Here's what he says to a small church like ours that he writes at the end of his life. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth 
just as the Father commanded us. What's so interesting about this to me is that most of the letters in Scripture are written to first-generation Christians. They're written to adults who are converting to Christianity, are beginning to follow Christ. And so the letters are written to adults, for adults, who are currently beginning to follow Jesus. It's for first-generation Christians. It's all for them. In the first generation of Christianity, all 12 of the apostles of Jesus, except one, are killed or die. Only John lives to see the second and third generation. And later in his life, he's writing to the church, and it's no longer just about that first generation. Now it's about that first generation's kids. Isn't that cool? It's about the first generation's next generation, the second generation or the third generation. It's about others. And so he writes to them, and he's like, I am, I am so joyful as I see your children embracing the truth. Like the results of your faithfulness affecting the next generation. It gives me so much joy. They're following God like we were told to follow God. And he's just like sits back and goes, that's amazing. So uh, what I want to do this morning is just kind of offer a, a series of thoughts, and, and maybe this will feel a little bit more conversational than, than typical, but I want to share a thought about monasteries, here's the outline, and, and churches, and I want to talk about consumerism, and a little bit about conflict, and a little bit about risking, and then finally I want to talk about how spending the summer with monks helped my marriage, okay? Here we go, monasteries. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of people are talking about St. Benedict these days, Yes. I'm serious. It really is. They, they are. A lot of books are being written about Benedictine spirituality, and most of these newer books talk about Benedictine spirituality, which is kind of a, a, a theme or a vein or a style or a set of emphases within Christianity. They talk about it within the context of personal spirituality. That's what they're talking about. How the, the themes of the rule of St. Benedict will help us connect to God and help us understand who we are. However, most of the introductions in older books about the rule of St. Benedict, they talk about the rule, this is the book that he writes, it's called The Rule, they talk about it not as a personal guide, but as a vision for community. The older books talk about it as a vision for community. And while the rule of St. Benedict definitely provides some brilliant information for soul formation, very little of it makes sense outside of the context of a committed community. So writers that treat the rule as instruction for some unmoored personal spirituality are actually severing the tree from its roots. They're disconnecting the, the fruit from the source of the life. What Benedictine spirituality, as well as any expression of Christianity, with Benedictine spirituality, the context is other people, and the context is critical. The context is other people, and the context is critical, not optional, it's critical. The monastery, which you could see as just sort of a residential worshiping community, sort of apart from the world, is just a radical or clear or especially pure example of an almost totally forgotten truth, which is Christianity is communal. It happens within the context of others. It is impossible to follow Jesus by yourself. And that should pro it might strike you as strange because our culture is so individualized. But it is actually impossible to follow Jesus by yourself. Here's some examples. Jesus says, love one another. That requires somebody else, right? Jesus says, forgive one another. You need to have somebody else, and frankly, they need to be offensive to you, so you can forgive them. <laughs> like, it's required. 
Jesus says, serve one another. That requires somebody else. Jesus says, share your, your resources with one another. It's impossible to share anything with yourself. That's just hoarding. That's just keeping. So Christianity happens with others. It is a distinctly others-focused religion. And that fact is especially obvious in a monastery where a few specific people commit to eating and sleeping and working and praying together for the rest of their lives. Is community the goal? No, community is a means to the goal. Salvation is the goal. The restoration of all things is the goal. But what a monastery reveals, at least to some, very clearly, is that restoration happens best within the context of community. Restoration happens best within stable community. So there's a thought about monasteries. Here's a thought about churches. Last summer, one of my, um, one of my goals in living at a monastery for a little while was to ask monks who, whose whole life is fortified by this vow of stability. I wanted to find out how that vow of stability, that emphasis on staying, might be translated to non-monastic modern communities like, like this one, like the church. In other words, how might a church like ours embrace stability? And one of the surprises of my summer was the fact that most of the monks responded to that question by saying, you can't. You can't experience stability in the church, especially the American church. They had strong opinions. Uh, in fact, one of the more common reasons that monks gave when I asked them, why did you become a monk? They said, well, we were look some, several of them said, we were looking for stable community in which to grow into meaningful spiritual devotion to, to God, but we couldn't find it in the church. We needed like a notch more intense or something. Um, and there are several reasons they said they hadn't found it in the church, and they weren't shy about pointing those out to me. But the main reason that they named for why the American church fails to be a stable environment for spiritual growth is this. It's saturated in consumerism. The church is saturated in consumerism. And we've talked about this before. I've noted that many in our culture treat the church less like a community and more like a commodity, something to just to get from, a commodity. Uh, many in our culture treat the church less like a family with whom you go through thick and thin no matter what and more like a phone company. And like if I got consolidated and AT&T's got a better deal, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bounce out of here, ditch this, and I'm going to go there because it's just a better deal. It's, just a, it's a better fit for me. Right? Less like a family, more like a phone company, less like a community, more like a commodity and, and the problem isn't really with the church. It's with the way we relate to the church. The church gets the blame, but it's not the church. The church is built on Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. That's rock-solid foundation. That's ultimate stability right there. The problem really isn't with the church. It's with the, it's with the way we relate to the church and as the church. I mean, the church is made up of just a bunch of regular folks like you and me. And we are more driven by convenience than by commitment often. Uh, we typically prefer ease to effort. We're pretty good at noticing what's wrong. We're not so quick to thank God for what's right with this church, with this house, with this marriage, with this job, with this moment in my life, this time. Oh, I can tell you nine things that are wrong but we have a lot harder time thanking God for one thing that's right. 
It's because we're saturated in consumerism. The value of consumerism says you need the newer, you deserve the better, there's always a reason to leave and go there. Countering the value of consumerism is the value of stability that says let's prioritize the reason to stay. Let's prioritize the reason to stay. So the monks might be right about the modern church. I think without a doubt the American church is crippled by consumerism. But maybe the answer, at least for us, is not to join a monastery. Maybe the answer for us is to work to restore the church, to be stable, a stable presence in a community that is existing in the midst of a culture that is just highly mobile, always changing, always looking for the next and the newest. Very unstable culture. Maybe the answer for us is to value staying in this moment in this place, to value staying in this relationship, in this community, instead of getting caught up with the bigger cultural current of constant change. If we did that, if we valued stability, even in the midst of a constantly changing culture, what do you think would happen? What do you think would be some of the results? Let me suggest a few. I think valuing stability would counter the pursuit of the perfect church. Right? What fuels much of the consumerism in church is the false idea of a perfect church. And you can chase that ideal if you want. You can always be looking for something that fits exactly like you like it. Or you can choose a very different guiding value, which would be the value of stability, the value of staying, the value of investing. And suddenly, the fact that this, that this church isn't perfect is no longer a surprise to you. You're like, oh yeah, I totally know that. That's not, I'm not chasing that anymore. I'm not on that track. I'm not playing that game. I know it's not perfect. What would happen if we valued stability in the midst of a constantly changing culture? A second thing, valuing stability would counter the illusion of the perfect marriage. Valuing stability would counter the illusion of the perfect marriage. Stability, it doesn't mean you're not trying to improve. It doesn't mean you're not working on problems. In fact, it means You are working hard and you expect problems because you know that this isn't a fairy tale. This is learning how to love. That's what this marriage is. This isn't happily ever after. This is a way to holiness. This is becoming a holy person, right? Like, let's get that straight. If we valued stability, we'd worry less about creating the perfect family. We'd have a totally different definition of a good home, We might have a real sense of peace about that less than perfect job. We might, if we valued stability. Because valuing stability is different from valuing more and more and more. And valuing stability is more than valuing me. It's more than valuing me. People who believe stability matters, people who believe that stability has value, are usually people who are motivated by the well-being of others. They're motivated by the well-being of others. Like John, it's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. I'm stoked about that. I'm 80 years old, I'm on an island. But I hear some of your kids are following Jesus. Clearly there are personal benefits to stability, but sometimes the fact that this is good for me is not motivation enough for me. Can anybody relate? I know it's good for me to go to the gym in the morning. That doesn't always get me out of bed, right? I need more than just motivation rooted in it's good for me. Somehow, I don't know how, but if I'm convinced it's good for somebody else, 
there's like a different category of motivation that kind of gets accessed there. If we valued stability for the sake of others, it's a whole different level than just valuing stability for your sake. What if we valued stability not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others? Sounds great. I think it sounds great. Why is it so rare? Because of conflict. Because there's always conflict. It just keeps coming. It's hard, right? Because we're not getting along right now. <laughs> She's, she doesn't agree with the decisions I'm making. He's so critical of me. She doesn't appreciate my effort. I'm not being fed. My kids don't like that teacher. I mean, we just go down the list. It's hard because of conflict. On paper, it looks great. Embrace stability for the sake of others. In real life, it's super, super hard because every one of us can point to like nine conflicts we're having with the people that we're sitting right next to because of conflict. There's always been conflict. There's always going to be conflict. I don't like conflict. You probably don't like conflict. But I notice that every good story involves conflict. Every good story is about a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, not runs away from conflict to find some illusion of a conflict-free world. No good movies are about that story because it's not a good story. It's a, it's a fake story. The good stories are about characters who want something and overcome the conflict to get it. So rather than running away from conflict, which is our impulse but is silly because you can't do that, we could spend that energy overcoming, digging in, working hard, being humble, asking good questions, overcoming conflict. And the way we start is by staying, not running. We start by staying. For my sake, yes, but also for your sake. That's why I'm staying. That's why I'm standing here right now, for your sake. That's why I'm not running away right now, for your sake. In order to communicate in action that this conflict is not going to make me run, this conflict will be faced, and in time it will be worked through. We'll figure it out. Conflict is what makes it so hard. We can't run away from it. We've got to face it. And then finally, this, just let me just name the variable that is swirling around this whole conversation about stability. The variable is risk. And to what degree are you comfortable with risk? And, and at what point is it worth it to stay? That's the risk. It's, it's risking that a life marked by stability will be more meaningful than a life marked by consumerism. And that's a tough pill to swallow because that consumerism-based life, it looks good. It looks like happy, better all the time, really, really shiny. Everybody's stoked about everything because it's all about consuming the next. The value of stability is this unsexy sort of like, I'm just remaining strong. <laughs> it's like, that's, it's, a harder, it's a harder value to embrace. It's like, this is my guiding value. If you do, it's risky. In other words, there may be real and lasting disappointments if you choose to stay. You might get hurt if you choose to stay. You might get hurt again if you choose to stay. You might walk with a limp for the rest of your life like Jacob did because he wrestled with God. He didn't run. He stayed and wrestled. And he's banged up for the rest of his life and yet blessed and knew God. The whole stability thing is risky. Of course it is. Is the potential payoff worth the risk? That's the question you got to decide. Is the potential payoff 
worth the risk. That's a decision you need to make. Oh, man, that could go really bad. This could go really bad. Yeah, it could. It could also be really beautiful. It could be really beautiful. It could be restored. It could, the brokenness could be restored. That's also possible. Committing to stay is taking a risk, and that's the choice that you need to make. So in summary, so far, this is what we've said. I know that's a lot of sort of random thoughts. We said monasteries are examples of how Christianity happens in community. We've talked about how the problem isn't really the church. It's about how we relate to the church as a commodity and how the cultural value of consumerism has saturated the church. We said that the reason staying in Christian community is hard is because there's always conflict. There's always conflict. And the, we've identified the potential kind of elephant in the room as the question, is staying in this relationship, in this situation, whatever, is staying really worth it? The benefit outweigh the cost. That's the risk. That's the risk. All right, so let me wrap this up by um, answering this question. I want to tell you about how monks helped my marriage. One of the main questions I've always wanted to ask monks is, why are you a monk? <laughs> like, why do that with your life? Why spend your whole life? And this summer, I got to ask four monks that question, plus four other guys in their 20s who were at the monastery the same time I was discerning whether or not to make a lifelong commitment to being a monk there at that monastery. Each of these discerning guys were 20-something years old from the United States, except one was from Poland, and their stories were unique and fascinating. But one phrase that I kept hearing over and over again was this. Why do you want to be a monk? Well, this is a good life. This is a good life. Not we've arrived sort of sense, not like this is the good life. That's not what I mean. More like this is a meaningful life. This is a good, worthwhile life. This is the good life. At first, I, a good life. I, I didn't notice it at first, but then they kept saying it. And not just the young guys, but the old guy who came down the stone steps really slowly and handed me his cane before he sat down next to me. We talked about stability. The brilliant PhD student from Notre Dame who was there discerning and committed to join the monastery while I was there. The big, tall, bearded Polish dude with a thick accent and a broken past. They all said the same thing. This is a good life. And part of what was so remarkable to me about this was that they were thinking so intentionally about their whole life, and I struggled to think intentionally even about a year, right? Even about a few months. But the main reason, friends, that I became so challenged by this phrase is because it revealed to me a perspective which I, on a practical level, I just don't always embrace. It's a perspective that has not always been very clear to me in my mind in the day-to-day -day way of living in my life and specifically in my marriage. Here's the perspective. It's not just embracing stability. It's the joy and freedom that comes, the joy and freedom that comes from embracing stability for the sake of somebody else. For the sake of somebody else. It's not just the value of staying. It's the value of staying for the sake of others. And here were these men who had made or were about to make 
this whole life commitment to serving God in this specific community with these specific guys, and there was this powerful sense of permanence about about the thing, and at the same time, there was this profound sense, surprising sense of freedom about the thing, and I was moved by this deep joy that I saw in so many of them as they expressed their surrender of themselves to God and to others in this place. This is a good life, they said, as if the whole value of consumerism just had fallen off their shoulders. They don't even play that game anymore. This is a good life, they said, with this deep sense of contentment about this lifelong vow that they've made to this specific community. This is a good life, they said, like the commitment to stay here for their whole life was the root or the source of their profound sense of freedom. And and I don't know how that might have challenged you if you had been there. Because clearly the idea of making a lifelong commitment for the sake of others can be applied to a lot of things. It can be applied to a lot of people, a lot of relationships, and a lot of, uh, a lot of things in your life. But what I thought about in these moments was my marriage. I thought about the early days when we were just 23 years old. I thought about the, the hard parts and the painful parts and the joys of children and the challenges of parenthood and the driving and the bills and, and the house projects and So many different ways I could have spent the last two and a half decades, right? All kinds of ways my life could have gone. And and here's what was so challenging to me, and here's what was so helpful. It it wasn't just the, for me, it wasn't just the commitment part as it relates to marriage, because I'm in, I'm all in. But for me, it was the for whose sake part, right? For whose sake? And that, that really challenged me. For my sake, for her sake. Not that it has to be either or, but which is leading that? Which is the primary purpose? Instead of asking in the midst of the day-to-day struggles that come in all relationships, including marriage, what do I need to get out of this relationship? What if my motivation shifted from what do I have to give to this relationship? What is my responsibility at this moment, at this struggle, at this conflict? It's, it's challenging to, to not just do the, hey, I'm here, bit. It's moving past the, hey, I'm here, to I'm here for you. That is why I'm here. Not just I'm here, but I am here for you. Clearly, meaningful relationships are a two-way street. Transparently, a lot of my energy is spent on how I feel, what I need, and my own goals and plans. And it's very possible for the stability to commitment, the stability commitment to become all about me. Right? A lot of people stay for themselves. But the joy and the freedom comes when you stay for someone else. And when you find meaning there and legitimate purpose there, when you embrace stability, not just because it's good for you, but because it's good for them. I can be so critical about a lot of things, including marriage. I can be so evaluative, so analytical, so joyless when I'm focused on making sure I have what I need today. It's never in the big, like, idealistic, philosophical picture of the institution of marriage. It's always, like, from 7.50 to 7.55 on Monday mornings. You know, it's that. That's what I'm talking about. I can be so critical, but there's such joy and freedom that comes in life when it's fully surrendered to somebody else. 
and serving somebody else. So what I'm trying to say, it's this move between the I'm here and the I'm here for you. And stability for your sake as the good life. This is a good life, being here for you. This is helping me grow. This is what the monks said and did that is helping me grow in my most intimate relationships with my family and, 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 and my marriage. Finally, did you know that when you eat at a Benedictine monastery, you don't ask for anyone to pass the salt? Or the water, or like another helping of vegetables. You don't ask for, there's two reasons. One is you don't speak. Nobody's talking. You eat in silence. And the second reason you don't ask for the salt is because you don't have to. You don't have to. Because they are looking and noticing. You haven't salted your food yet, and they offer you the salt. They notice your glasses is getting low, and they pour you some more water. They think, perhaps you'd like another piece of bread, and they hand you the basket of bread. They're not just there. They're there for you. And that's a good life. They're all in for you. It's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. It's a meaningful thing. It's so much better than the me-first consumeristic alternative that our culture says is the source of happiness. They're there for you. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Uh, we bring to you our, our feelings of uh, disappointment in ourselves and others. Uh, we bring to you our, our senses of failure, um, our regrets. And, and we also bring to you our current reality, our current relationships, and we pray for grace, Lord, to demonstrate the truth of your character by staying, um, by loving, not primarily for ourselves, but for others, for the specific other. Um, I pray for healing, and grace in the marriages in this church. I pray for uh, strong families and relationships beyond marriage, the families and the friendships and the small groups. And I pray that the community of this place would be fortified by this deep-rooted value of stability and that we would experience the life that you have given us to live, that this would be a good life, and we'd be freed to live it with our whole hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.